Welcome to the MPC Podcast. I am Tim W. Gill, pastor of Medora Pentecostal Church, and I'm thrilled that you've joined us today. Here at MPC, we are committed to bringing hope and building lives. One way we do that is through this podcast. Thank you for listening, for sharing and reviewing what we do here. It is our desire to connect with you, and you can find us on Facebook, or you can find us at our website, medorachurch.com. It is our prayer that today's message inspires you, encourages you, and that the kingdom of God is advanced in your life. Let's get right to the word of the Lord today. what's been on my heart today. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. You could probably quote it, couldn't you? The very beginning. In in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Thank God. Let's pray together. Lord, our God... You are great, and as we are told, you are greatly to be praised. Would that our lips could form the proper words to exalt you highly in our midst today. Bless us as we share together in our study this evening. Let it come alive to us, direct our thoughts, and we'll thank you for your goodness, your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the beginning, in the beginning, God, God. This, of course, is our introduction, not only, not only introduction to our Bible, but introduction to God, the Creator. I want to talk a little tonight about, about that term, God. This is how we're introduced to him. We're no, we're, there are no uh, introduction, if you will. As to who he is, what he is, where he is, where he came from. I remember I worked at a place one time and, and I heard some women, they were talking about the Bible and about God and whatever. And, and one of them said that uh, when God woke up, his head was above the waters. She never explained where he woke up from or where he was when he woke up. But said his head was above. I never read that scripture anywhere. God needs no explanation, as if you will, because he is eternal. He is God. He is God. But anyway, the word God is what I like to emphasize tonight and spend some time on. God. It's the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim. And every time you read the word God in your Old Testament, it's derived from this word, the Hebrew word, either Elohim or the short term El, E-L. But most of the time, Elohim, Elohim. One of the definitions or meaning of the name Elohim, we are told, is the all-sufficient one who alone is creator. From what I have been able to see and find out, the name is found some 2,570 times in the Old Testament. In fact, it's found 32 times in that first chapter of Genesis. 
I picked up some quotes I found someplace, and I'd like to read them to you. Uh, begin with Abraham, particularly the people of Abraham. They became the promulgators of monotheism or the teaching of one God. No nation of people ever became monotheistic without, first of all, being influenced by the Hebrew people. They were the ones that embraced it, beginning with Abraham. Abraham, who come from a company and a, a people who were idolaters that worshipped many gods. And Abraham become, became introduced to the one God, Elohim. The Anchor Bible writes, Monotheism is predicated on the concept of a God who has no rivals and is therefore omnipotent. As the unchallenged master of all creation, he has an equal interest in all of his creatures, since every nation has the same claim to his care. Each can aspire to just and impartial treatment in conformance, which is uh, his uh, conduct. And then there is a fellow named Dawkins. He wrote, uh, you may have seen it or maybe have it, I don't know. He wrote a book called God Delusion. God Delusion. And he said in his uh, writings, if God created everything, we would have to ask who created God. Now, isn't that an intelligent statement? If God created everything, then we would have to ask who created God. And, and someone said with such a question, we could readily see that Dawkins has in his mind a created God which another writer by the name of Lennox said, created gods are a delusion. Created gods are a delusion. We'll say an amen to that. Created gods are a delusion. There's no reality. Stephen Cole, not related to our Cole, but uh, Stephen Cole, in the beginning, that means that he, is, he alone is self-existent Everything else in the universe has a beginning, a cause. God alone always has been, is, and will be. He is the first cause, himself uncaused. As most put it, Moses put it so eloquently in Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, which to me, to my finite mind, is mind-boggling, mind-boggling. Everything that we know and relate to has a cause or a beginning, but God has no cause and has no beginning. We don't, we don't have a category to fit him into. We can't grasp the concept of a being that has no beginning and, and certainly has no ending, who exists in and of himself. He is God. And we could stir up our mind and get all frustrated. We could spend a lot of time arguing with ourselves in the mirror and somebody else as well. But we'll never find the conclusion, where did God come from? He didn't come from anywhere. How can he be eternal? He's God. It's beyond explanation. If God is one, he is one absolutely. The Bible affirms not only does he exist, 
but he must exist. If he didn't, we wouldn't be. And the five simple words of the declaration in Exodus when he said to Moses, I am that I am. Simple and yet profound. When Moses says, who am I going to tell that sent me? And that was the response that God gave to him to tell to the people of Israel, I am that I am, which suggests that God's existence, first of all, is necessary. Again, if there was no God, there'd be no planet Earth, moon or stars, nor anything else. But anyway, being what he is, God could not fail to be who he is. And being who he is, God could not fail to be. Emily Bronte, maybe you've read, read some of her writings, I don't know, but uh, anyway, the off-quoted lines of Emily, though earth and man were gone and suns and universe ceased to be and thou wert left alone, every existence would exist in thee. That's kind of poetic, isn't it? God is the great key, the creator, the continuity of the universe tells us that he is. You know the sun always comes up in the east and it always sets in the west, at least for us here in the good old U.S. of A. The flowers are going to bloom. I don't care if it snows 14 feet deep this winter. Next spring at the turning of the Lord, the flowers are going to bloom again. The birds are going to sing and I like to hear the birds sing, unless I'm trying to sleep. And the moon still governs the tide. That's the way it is. That's the way it's been. And that's the way it's going to continue to be until God, I don't know what he's going to do tomorrow. But one of these things, one of these days, we're going to have a brand new earth and new heavens that have been cleansed of the, of the devil's presence and even the atmosphere has been changed. But anyway, nothing needs repairing except us. Nothing needs repairing except us. We haven't had an uh, astronaut or a cosmonaut or any other kind of knot to make it to the moon or to the sun, rather, excuse me, make it to the sun to check on it. It's been burning fine for umpteen 11 years and some. I remember listening to a preacher many years ago. In fact, it was here in Indiana, uh, Bishop David. He passed a church in uh, Idaho. Right now, the place slips from my mind. Twin Falls, Idaho. And he was, he was born in Ur of the Chaldees where Abraham was born. That's where he was born and raised and made his way to America. Uh, he had a maid that uh, took care of him and his wife. I don't know how many children, if he had any. But anyway, his wife died, so he married the maid. But the maid was religious, and he wasn't. But his maid had a Bible, and she left it laying around, and he picked it up and got to reading it. And uh, got to reading about, uh, he read that verse, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and so on. 
Anyway, in his message, uh, that passage and others as well convinced him or convicted him. But in his, in his message, he mentioned hell. And he said, how can there be a fire that would burn forever and ever and ever? How could there be such a thing? And then he mentioned, just look up to the sky. There's a sun that's been burning for no telling how many years. I know we've been around for about 6,000 as far as man's concerned, but that sun was around a long time before we got here, and it's still burning. It hasn't faded. Amen. But anyway, this idea, this word Elohim, uh, one mightier than all gods, God of gods, the plural, and it is a plural word. The plural is used in the Hebrew to enlarge and to intensify the idea that's expressed by the singular. Elohim is not the gods, but is the strongest of all strong beings, the fullness of divine perfections, the sum of all powers of all imaginable gods. There is nothing in the name, uh, this writer said, and I don't know who it is, I don't know what the author's name, there is nothing in this name either for or against the idea of a trinity. Elohim, emphasizing not a division of number, but rather an emphasis of power and authority. As the Hebrew, we are told, the Jews, we are told, to emphasize something that's better than anything else would be kind, I heard a preacher say, be like comparing uh, the whatever the animal is, be it a cow or a hog, at the county fair winning the blue ribbon. And they would call them the pigs or the hogs or the cows. It would always be emphasized in the plural because it is uniquely different than all the others put together. This name Elohim contains the idea of creative and governing power, omnipotence, sovereignty. It's clearly indicated by the fact that from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 to chapter 2 and verse 4, the word Elohim or God is, is emphasized 35 times. And that's before we get to the uh, term Jehovah and then the compound terms Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Shama, Jehovah Rohi, uh, Jehovah Shalom. You know what Shalom is, don't you? I thought you would answer. Peace, peace, my brother, peace, my sister, shalom. That's what the Jews would say and the Arabic people would say even. It is Elohim who creates the vast universe by his mighty power. It is he who speaks and it's done. The one who brings into being what was not. And that's another thing that just stirs the imagination of our finite mind. As the Bible teaches us in Hebrews that this creation of heaven and earth was made out of that which did not exist. Out of nothing, it, out of nothing came something wonderful. There is blessing and comfort in the great name of Elohim. It signifies supreme power. It emphasizes sovereignty and glory. Matthew 6, 13, remember that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 
speaking of the heavenly father. On the other hand, it signifies a covenant relationship that he is ever faithful to keep. And so we have in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7, I will take you to be uh, to me for a people. I will be to you a Elohim. And you shall know that I am the Lord, or Yahweh, or Jehovah, your Elohim. He's my God. He's my Elohim. He's my Savior. In Psalm 91 and 2, that beautiful psalm, I will say of the Lord, or I will say of Jehovah, he is, he is my refuge and my fortress, my Elohim. In him will I trust. And even back in that prayer in Matthew 6, Jesus said, when you begin the prayer, say, Our Father, our Father, which is in heaven. Our Father, amen. It matters not the race, the color of the skin, the ethnic background. We can all know him personally for ourselves. And while the name Elohim is plural, which is another thing interesting about this fact, it's a plural word, but it's constantly accompanied by verbs and adjectives that are in the singular. In fact, in that first verse where it says created, that's a plural verb, but it's singular. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me, I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Singular pronouns are employed in this verse uh, throughout, referring to Elohim. In Isaiah 45, another example, verses 5 and 22, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee. I, 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 though thou hast not known me, look unto me. Be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Singular pronouns employed. But when the name Elohim, and it, it, this is, emphasizes that much more interest, because the very same word, Elo, Hebrew word Elohim, is made in reference to heathen gods or idols. In 1 Samuel 4 and verse, I'll just give you two. 1 Samuel 4 and verse 8, Woe unto us who shall deliver us out of the hand of those of these mighty Elohims, gods. They, these are the Elohims that smote the Egyptians and all the plagues in the wilderness. Also in Exodus 32 and 4, he received them at their hand and fashioned it, it with a graving tool, speaking of the, bowl, of the golden calf of Aaron. After he had made it, in, in, it a molten calf, they said, These be thy gods, and it's Elohim. O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. So it's obvious from these examples, and others could be given, that uh, to uh, emphasis, the references to the Lord God emphasizes his oneness, while the reference to the heathen gods, although the same Hebrew word is employed, that there's more than one heathen God in reference 
But when it comes to God, there is but one that singular reference because he is one. He is one. Somebody put it this way, and I don't know who it was. Elohim, a plural of majesty, indicates greatness, incomprehensibleness of the deity. It is well known that the Hebrews often expressed a word in the plural so as to give it a special or technical meaning, as in the case of words uh, blood, water, wisdom, salvation, righteousness, life. In these cases, it is implied that the word in the singular number is not large enough to set forth all that is uh, intended. And so in the case of the divine name, the plural form expresses the truth that the finite word conveys an inadequate idea of the being whom it represents. The pulpit commentary said its plural form is to be explained neither as a remnant of polytheism nor as indic indicating a plurality of beings through whom the deity reveals himself. It's one, 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 one way to God. The Hebrew emphasize and uses the plural to emphasize again the value or the importance of whatever it's referencing. Now, can we see, the question is, can we see, the, see Elohim when we think about the name Jesus? Jesus, as to who he is and what he is. For instance, in John 1 verse 3, John said all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. That's interesting. Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dimensions, dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That's an awesome, mind-blowing, I guess we could say, statement. These verses verify us that Jesus, they said, was creator. Obviously, it's not Jesus, the Son, it's not Jesus, the body, the tabernacle, but the God who was manifested through this one called Jesus. He was the one who created all things because, again, contrary to some who uses, uses the unscriptural term, God the Son, there is no such thing as God the Son. If he's God, he's not a son. If he's Son, it's not a God, unless it's a heathen God, an idolatrous God. Notice in verse 17 of that passage in Colossians, all things were created for, by him. Notice this. This is key to understanding what Paul is saying. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. All things continue. Remember the prayer in the book of John chapter 17, 
that whole chapter is devoted to a prayer that Jesus prayed that some have called uh, his high priestly prayer. But in verse 5 is an awesome statement that the Lord made during his prayer. Uh, he said, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Here is Jesus, the man, the tabernacle, the son, praying. I don't know physical position, but it's an awesome prayer. The entire chapter uh, in, in uh, John chapter 17 is praying, and he's asking God the Father, Elohim. He is asking, glorify me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. The glory. And again, let me back up to John chapter 1, the gospel. Chapter 1, beginning 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. All things were created by him. Who's he talking about? God. All things were created by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So we have the expression to the word, which in the Greek is cosmos. Cosmos. And in the beginning was the cosmos. And the cosmos was with God. And the cosmos was God. And the same was, within, was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by God, all things by him, and without him was not anything made which was made. And then drop down to verse 14 of that chapter 1 of John, it says, and the word, the cosmos, was made flesh. How did that happen? It took place, I started to say, in a stable in Bethlehem, but really it took place in a virgin long before, nine months before Bethlehem at least. But anyway, this word, uh, cosmos, that took place, uh, a term that's used by John Logos, the word Logos from the Greek, and I quote from Mr. Strong's, the noted Greek uh, Scholar, I quote from him, by implication, a topic, subject of discourse, also reasoning, the mental faculty, or motive, by extension, a computation, especially with the article in John, the divine expression, i.e., in other words, Christ. Account, cause, have to do, intent. So this word cosmos that's used here is referring to one's thought, their intent, their imagining, their planning in their mind. Not unlike an artist who knows what he's going to paint before he paints it because it's in his mind. Not unlike the architect that goes about to prepare a building he knows in his mind how many bedrooms he wants and how many bathrooms he wants and how many outhouses he wants. But 
he has it in his mind because, before he puts it on paper. And so it was, if you will, I know that's a crude way of saying it, maybe. But this is, this is Logos. It was the plan. It was the mind. It was the will of God before he created this earth from the very beginning. Again, Jesus said, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory that I had with thee before the world was. The glory that God Elohim had concerning Jesus Christ was the fact that when he began creation, if I can put it that way, he knew someday there's going to be a church. Someday there's going to be a Calvary. Someday there's going to be the need of blood being shed. He knew that before it would happen. So Jesus, when in his prayer, <clears throat> spoke of the glory which I had with thee before the world was, is a reference to the plan from eternity past, which Elohim had uh, during creation. From the very beginning, the sacrifice that would take place on a tree outside the wall of Jerusalem, the shedding of the blood of the Savior, Jesus Christ, was in the will, the, the mind, the plans of Elohim long ago. And so we have the statement which is so important here as well and fits in so good in Galatians 4 and 4. When the fullness of time, it was not time until it took place again in Bethlehem of Judea. And we could debate when that birth took place. But I can assure you, according to Walls, chapter 6, it was not December the 25th. <clears throat> but <laughs> I just needed to throw that in, you know. But when the fullness of the time was come, look at it. Creation, heaven, the angels... And all of earth waited 4,000 years after man was placed in the garden for this day to arrive. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. So we can also see the plan and the will of God, I think, I think to me is very interesting uh, to consider in regards to what God planned and knew in his mind was going to happen. And probably Genesis 1, 26 fits right in here. But let's go first to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, which is interesting. Man has sinned. They tried to cover their nakedness with some fig leaves. They've hidden behind some trees, or they think they have. And so when it all is over with, and God has passed judgment, if you will, upon them, upon man, or the, the earth, and upon the woman, and upon that serpent. And then the Bible tells us in verse 21 of chapter 3 of Genesis, unto Adam and to his wife did the Lord, did Yahweh, or Jehovah, if you will, Elohim, make coats of skins and clothe them. Which, to me, there's a powerful message right here in reference to the plan, the will of God. 
Why did he clothe them with skins? Why didn't he rip some bark off of the nice tree and clothe them uh, in, or whatever? But here he took some animals, or at least one animal, probably one for each. And here at least one animal, if not two, was sacrificed to clothe these two, which speaks to us so clearly and so loudly of Calvary, of Calvary, and of the blood that will be shed there for us and our redemption. Again, we have the, the uh, plan and the will of God from the very beginning. So Elohim established from the very beginning that blood would have to be shed to answer the problems of sin. But the blood of thousands, even tens of thousands of goats and lambs and bullocks during those many years, uh, particularly we think of the 1,500 years of the law, could never suffice to remove or eradicate sin from the sinner. It took Calvary. It took the sinless Lamb of God to bring about this. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. I've often, or I have thought uh, more than once, if I may back up just a smidgen here, and I'll close a little while, that that sacrifice that took place, I'm assuming in the garden, when the Lord caused those two creatures, animals to be, I say two, one or two, let me say two, because it was two people. I wondered uh, what kind of animals they were. And I have also wondered if they were, uh, the animals were made extinct with what took place. I wondered, I wondered, I wondered. But that's just curiosity. But it also applied, the reason I thought, was thinking that because I know the one that supplied the blood for my covering was the one and only. One and only. So I'm wondering if those animals were only one of a kind and there were no others to follow. When Calvary took place, there will be no more Calvaries, no more sacrifices, if you will. Anyway, this was why there was a young virgin who became pregnant, bearing the child that was to be given what Isaiah 9 and 6 tells us about, uh, a child being born, the son being given, the government upon his shoulders, and you know the rest. Her pregnancy was the result of the eternal placing sperm in her womb that resulted in pregnancy and formed, if you will, the Son of God, something that had never been before except the angels were called sons of God in the Old Testament, but no sons of God, humanly speaking. When Jesus was born nine months later in that stable or wherever it was in Bethlehem, Genesis 1 and 26, 
was fulfilled and mankind could now experience redemption. When God said, and I don't want to go too far here, uh, we could, it's time to quit in, in about at least 30 more minutes. But when, when God said, let us make man, in my mind, in my thinking, and thinking of all the scriptures pertaining to our salvation, I'm wondering if God was talking of that time when he was going to have a son. He was going to have a flesh and blood son that would be called Jesus, Savior. So he could say, let us. He had to have a son. He had to have a son because only the son could have blood. God has no blood. He is a spirit. He is eternal. But when that child was born in Bethlehem, he had blood, perfect blood, pure blood, if you will. So God said, let us. He needed some help. I guess I can put it that way. Maybe that's the wrong way of saying it. But Jesus provided what you and I needed. Amen. But the blood of sheep and goat, whatever. And Jesus, let me, let me close in a few more verses here and I'll shut up. But I say all that to say this. God is spirit. And this, this is one of the things I just can't get it through my thick head, my Missouri head that I need to be shown some things. I just can't get it in my mind why it is that anybody can look at the scriptures and say there are three persons in the Godhead. I don't understand whatsoever. All I need is one verse, one verse. John chapter 4 and verse 24 should be sufficient for anybody with any good saying clear thinking to realize the Bible says in John 4 24 God is spirit God is not a body God is not a person God is a spirit in fact John said in John 1 verse 18 no man has seen God at any time but the son in his bosom has manifested him God is revealed through Jesus Christ. And Jesus was not another deity. He was not another person of the Godhead. He was Elohim, Jehovah, Yahweh, walking among his creation in the person of the flesh of Jesus Christ. That's why we read in the book of Colossians 1.15, Paul said, who is the image of the invisible God. If you ever see God, it's going to be in the face of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He knew what he was talking about, didn't he? That is one of the most controversial uh, discussions, biblical discussions, even in our day, is the subject of the Godhead. Without controversy, without arguing. God, who? God was manifest in the flesh. How? In the person of Jesus Christ. 
justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. And then one last verse. Jesus was God walking among his creation in the flesh. Jesus, a God became something he had never been, but never ceased being what he always was. God became, took on human, I don't want to say became because he wasn't, he just took on humanity. And no wonder when Philip said in John 14, Jesus, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And you know this, the verse there in John 14 and 9 where Jesus said to Philip, Philip, have I not been so long time with you? And you, you, you still don't know who I am? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Isn't that potent? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Logos. He is the fulfillment of the plan, the will, the mind, the purpose of Elohim from the very beginning. We find the will, the plan, the mind the plan, uh, of God, of Elohim, in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is our God. I'm so glad I know him. Amen. Amen. I'm so glad I've been buried in his name. I can be identified with him. I'm so glad he filled me with his spirit. And I'm so glad my name's in his book. And I'm so glad I'm looking for him. Amen. Amen. Don't you love Thank you for listening to the MPC podcast. We trust that today's message has inspired you, encouraged you, and strengthened you in the Lord. We would like to invite you to join us again by simply subscribing to our podcast, and we encourage you to write a review if it has been a blessing to you. Again, you can find us at medorachurch.com to learn more about our ministry.